Thanks, Jim. So this has been an interesting series. I hope it has been for you as well, as we've looked at these festivals from the Jewish tradition and looked how Jesus actually drug them out of the desert, so to speak, but brought them forward into the culture of the gospel and the church. And we can learn so many different things. And along the journey, of course, we, we started, Jim started with us at Hanukkah. Stefan talked about Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to connect very strongly to those things today. You'll hear that a bunch about that, that festival in particular. Bill talked about the Day of Atonement, which is great information. Jim last week talked about the Festival of Booths. And next week, he'll talk about one we don't often think about as a festival, and that is the idea of Sabbath or Shabbat. We think of it as like a day of the week, but to them, it was one of the festivals that you'll see that, actually some evidence of that today as we study. Now, Wendy, can you put up those verses, please? So we read these at the beginning of the service. How many of you remember that we read these last week? Anybody remember that? These are the same verses we read. John 7, last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up. And remember, Jim talked about the priests throwing the water out onto the floor, and then Jesus referring to that. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The reason I had us read that is because look at the next verse. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Now, let me just tell you, we don't get a lot of commentary in the scripture from the authors of scripture. It doesn't happen very often. The first time is all the way back in the Old Testament in Genesis when it's talking about man and woman, male, female, and then there's a little aside that says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one. That's a commentary. It almost never happens. But in John, John looking back on Jesus standing there as the priest threw the water on the floor in that festival, which is the festival of booths in the fall, Jesus mentioned the living water of the Spirit, and John grabbed it and said, this is what he was talking about, and we're going to get to that today in this festival for sure. Now, when I say Pentecost, because that's, this was the Feast of Weeks or of Pentecost, but when I say the very Bible word Pentecost, what comes to mind for you? Holy Spirit comes right out in mind. What else? Anything else? Yeah, they're gathered in an upper room. You think of kind of a context, right? The what? Five. Thank you. That's awesome. Because what's this word sound like? Pentecost. And actually, the Greek word, Pentecost, simply means 50. It doesn't mean anything more than that. When they we translated before Jesus showed up, what we now call the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, they inserted the word Greek word Pentecost, 50, in for this word, the, the weeks, because 50 was a little more specific. So five is a great pickup. Maybe you wouldn't say this out loud, but I will. I think of Pentecostals, right? A group that has actually developed since 1900 in the church in, in the United States in particular, but other places and around the world now since then. But because of the Azusa Street revival that happened in Los Angeles, uh, an awakening of the gifts of the Spirit that were very much like the gifts back at Pentecost, that group actually self-identified as Pentecostal. We're trying to 
think back to that time frame and remember. Um, and so I don't know about you, but I have some things related. I might point out something about Pentecost today that you've never connected before. I actually had one of the gentlemen come up after the service. He's been a Christian since he was a little kid. His dad was a seminary professor for decades, and he said, nobody's ever connected those things for me before. That might happen today. If you already know it, great. We'll celebrate it together. But do this. Um, as we're moving forward and we think about that, let's set these two expectations first before we go in and look at the scripture. First, let's find something that will matter to us today. We're not just trying to revive the ancient celebrations and do them again. That's not what we're doing by having this entire series. Stefan's idea was brilliant because the idea was let's talk about and celebrate what the Jews did in their culture, but then let's make sure that it comes forward to us, that there's motion to us. We have more in common with the ancient Jews theologically than we usually think about. In fact, I hope I can get you to this place by the end of this message where you say, oh my goodness, we had a lot more in common with the Jews. I hope that we can get there. The second thought is this. Let's be pretty realistic about the actual engagement of the Jews. I've listened to our language, and we kind of make it seem like every Jew in every place in every corner for all the hundreds of years of Jewish existence were practicing all these things. There's just no way that that was true. It was a realism about it. They usually were living in, in villages of like somewhere from 40 to maybe 150 in smaller gatherings like that. And the truth is the patriarchs, the family leaders in those towns probably made the decisions as to how involved they were with these festivals. Because remember, three of them in a year were a pilgrimage where you left town, your home, and you went to either Jerusalem or Dan or Bethel or Samaria, one of the other worship centers, and celebrated these feasts. So there were probably whole towns that nobody went, or maybe they sent one person or something. So let's be realistic about that. All right, let's go back and look at the Old Testament. Get your Bibles out or your phone or your iPad, or your tablet if you happen to have one, or there's Bibles in front of you. We're going to go back to Exodus 34, and we're going to start back there to start looking at this process and this festival. I'll just read this one, get us in. We're going to pick up some pieces. I'll try to, to grab them, and then we're going to come back and explain them here. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 34, 1, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone, like the first ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first ones, which you broke. Which sounds a little, you know, accusatory, doesn't it? But you know the story, right? Moses is up on the mountain, he gets the law, he comes down, and you can see Charlton Hessen, right? He's got a tablet on either side, and he's kind of walking down the mountain. And, and then he gets to the bottom, and what's going on? They're partying and actually worshiping a golden calf, and Moses says, are you kidding me? These are worthless. We're these people will never follow these, and he trashes them. And God says, grace, if you want to see grace in the Old Testament. God says, oh, we're going to get some stones, and they're going to have these laws on them. In fact, he says, be ready in the morning, come up in the morning. Like, Moses, we got a lot of work to do, so get up here early. We're going to get these recopied. This is a significant piece. I really want you to hear this, that this arrival of the law is very significant, and it shows up right here in chapter 34. Go over to verse 10 with me. 
You might slide with your finger or turn, or maybe you don't even have to turn the page. And it says this, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as I have not created in all of the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. So he celebrates, he talks about, and makes sure that they have the law. And he says, this is related to this covenant. Okay? This is a very important piece. We'll explain it more as we go. But let's keep sliding over in this verse, or in this chapter. Verse 17, he says, don't make any gods of cast metal. Verse 18 Keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is in connection with the Passover. He's actually talking right in that culture to them. Verse 21, six days you'll work, but on the seventh day you rest. Sabbath was one of the festivals that was going on. Verse 22, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Now, the Feast of Ingathering is almost never used or mentioned again. But this is kind of developing as we're going. God mentions this. Look what he says. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord, Yahweh, your God of Israel. And he makes a deal out of it. Three times a year, pilgrimage. But who's coming? Just the men at this point. Just the men. So we picked up a couple of details here. But you're going to see some real development as we go through these books in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, as we move along. Go to Leviticus 23, verse 1. Slide over one book. We picked up in there a brief mention of grain, the, the wave offering, the covenant, and the law. We picked that up in Exodus 34. Now in Leviticus 23, we're going to go back there, verse 1, right off the top. Here's what he says. These are the feasts. Moses, speak to the people of Israel. These are the feasts appointed of the Lord. They're holy convocations, gatherings together. Shabbat is the first one. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath solemn of rest. See, God puts this right in the list. Next, the Passover, verse 4. These are the appointed feasts, the holy convocation, verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. You hear how much more detail is there? It's specific. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. See, these became intrinsically hooked together. It's literally one day and then the next day that these two go together. Verse 9, he's going to start the conversation about Feast of First Fruits. Verse uh, 11, 10, specifically. Bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He'll wave the sheaf before the Lord. He had said that in the last discussion, right? Now, we move on to verse 15. Listen how specific this gets. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, the great Sabbath of, of the Passover, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Very specific, right? There's a counting going on. What does this refer to? What's the point of this? Now, here's what's interesting. They're a little bit separated away from Exodus, from the first book. This looks back to what was Passover celebrating? What was the great event in Israel's history? Passover. The exodus, right? The Passover time when God said, you know, you're going to put the blood on the door mantles and then I'm taking you out of this place. Then he says very specifically, count these days 
until you celebrate this next feast. Why? Because this is the time frame when the law showed up for them. They had had, they'd received the law in the first description. Now, he says, this is a celebration to remember the law. And you'll bring a grain offering. You bring loaves of bread. So he doesn't, it goes on about that. You bring some other sacrifices of animals. And he's talking, you're not only celebrating the provision of law, what's your favorite rule, <laughs> but he's also celebrating the provision of grain and life, this, this harvest. Um, and he talks about goats and bulls and rams. Then um, bring this together. But look what happens in verse 22 that he didn't do in the last time. And when you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. What, what story does that remind you of? What? Oh, you remember? Ruth, very good. The story of Ruth. Remember Ruth out and Boaz had saved the edges of the field so that she could get some food. Because look, you leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God brings in social justice to bear right here. Very interesting. He hadn't done that in the first time through, but he mentions it. Now, there's another couple of passages. We're not going to read the passage in Numbers 28, but he again reviews grain mostly in that. But go with me to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, this is the last of the Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy 16 is another journey across, skipping over the waves of these festivals. And he starts with Passover. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Here there's a, month to the, a name to the month now and a reference point in that. And he gives a lot of detail. Then we get to verse 9. What's the next festival he brings up? You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count. Listen how detailed this is. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. He connects it to the grain. But he's like, we're counting these days. We're remembering something. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to Yahweh your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand. He hadn't talked about it with this kind of language. Give as the Lord your God blesses you. Now, if you want to get an early principle about giving, this is the idea. Yes, bring the specific lamb, bring the bull, bring the things, bring the first grain that you bring, but also give in accordance with, in proportion with what God has given you. That principle of giving never changes through the entire word, all the way through scripture. But look who else he says about people who I want you to bring to this festival. This changes. Verse 11, rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, and your male and female servants, and the sojourners, and the fatherless, and the widows. He actually, God, expands the list to be about social justice. Bring everybody with you. And I can tell you, if you followed the track all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets, this is the model that the prophets refer to. The prophets talk about the worship of Israel, the festivals, the feasts, the celebrations. And they immediately flip around and grab these four groups of people, the same people, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, and those who are sojourners, the immigrants in your land. Every prophet grabs that same model and compares. He says, 
I, we think that the prophets were all mad about idolatry. That is not as big of a deal as social justice. The prophets always hook it together. They're like, so what? You come and worship me. Think about some of those verses. Do I want 10,000 rivers of oil or a whole bunch of dead animals sitting around? I don't care about that if you're not fulfilling the actual awareness of what this is about. And that is to love those who are marginalized. Why? Interestingly, this passage tells us. When you come down to verse 12, you'll remember this because you were a slave in Egypt. This is an honest reference to what this actually means and reminds them of. This can really mean for us. But I can tell you this as a couple of observations as we think about this passage. This is really hard because there's two things that are talked about as provision. One is law that's connected to covenant. And the other is grain, food, that's connected to social justice. Those two things. As Americans, we have a terrible time with both of these. Think about what America means. Do we like people telling us what to do? There ain't anybody going to tell me what to do, right? I am free. I have liberty. I have autonomy. I have, dang it. I don't care what anybody says. That's not going to happen, right? I mean, this is who we are. We have a, the thought of having a celebration about receiving law. Are you kidding? This is so un-American. I don't know if, if Moses knew that. But then the other thing is, over here, think about provision. Do you connect it all to what hap- where your food even comes from? You think your food comes from City Market. <laughs> like it's Kroger provides for us. In Kroger We Trust or something. I don't even know what this looks like. Or in Costco. I mean, stop and think about it for a minute, right? We're not... In fact, you don't even think, you might complain a little bit because the grapes cost more because it's not the right season, but you're still going to buy them if you want, and you can get them anything, anytime. They were very connected to the cycles of the seasons. They were very aware, and God connected this to say, I provided for you even though you're a bunch of slaves. The provision thing is tough for us, but I really want you to hear this. If you fall asleep through the rest of it, fine. This I want you to hear. We have a tendency to think that the big deal was that God brought Israel out of Egypt and, and it did it miraculously. Remember all of, the, all of the different things that happened, the plagues and stuff? They never pulled one sword out. They never drew one bow back. It's astounding that Egypt, the most powerful country on the planet, the empire, would let their worker slaves literally just walk out. But let me tell you this. Had God just brought them out, brought them across the Red Sea, walked them into the wilderness and said, see ya. Think about what that would have meant for the nation of Israel. It wouldn't have lasted 15 minutes first of all. Second of all, they'd have gone right back, absorbed right back into Egypt. That's what would have happened. They kept talking about going back. But third of all, they would have had no sense of identity or true personage. And I want you to know this is what God did. God said, I am making a covenant with you. Here's the little thing, the phrase that comes up all the way through the Old Testament. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this is very personal. This is very relational. Nobody else in the ancient Near East had a relationship with their gods like that. Nobody did. 
And not only that, but he says, I'm going to give you a definition by giving you the law. It's a deposit. It's a down payment. It's a seal on this agreement of this covenant. I turn you into a people. Now think about the history for 3,500 years of Israel. Has anybody had more impact on the history of the world than the Jews? They never built an empire. They never invented a bunch of stuff. They never created language that became very useful. Hebrew kind of died out. I mean, uh, when you think about it, you go, why does that happen? It's because they knew they were a people. God had invested in them. And they celebrate the arrival of the law after the coming out because coming out would have meant nothing without creating a new people. We're going to grab a hold of that because you're going to see we have a lot of in common with them. Now, I, get, I grant you that the Old Testament is hard to understand. You know, we always bring the kids up here. I'm going to give you a couple of pieces of advice from the kids about the Old Testament. Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread that doesn't have any ingredients. <laughs> Later, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. Now that's a good American kid, news Ten Amendments. Then Moses died before he ever reached Canada, a connection of Canada and Canaan. The greatest miracle, this is probably true, in the Old Testament was when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed. <laughs> okay, that's, that's true. But this is my favorite one. Uh, total mix of metaphors. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. <laughs> okay, that's a little misunderstanding of the Old Testament. And I get it. We can experience that same thing. Take your Bible, go over to Acts 1, and we're going to see if we can't connect a little back that will help us not just go, wait, what was all this going on here? Jesus, <laughs> in fact, the entire arrival of the church, the Old Testament shows us the birth of Israel, the, the bringing out, the giving, the provision, keeping alive, the handing of the law as a seal in the covenant. And the New Testament shows the birth of the church. And you'll be amazed how much of this connects together. Acts 1.1. Go right to the beginning. And we're going to pick up on what Luke has to say. Now, he starts talking about, to this man, Theophilus, about a bu another book that he has written. What was that other book that he wrote? Yeah, the Gospel of Luke. We call it Luke, so that's pretty easy. And he, re he remembers that. And he says, okay... I, I want to bring this together, and I've written this. Let's see, where am I here? Oh, I, I went to Luke. That was my problem. Like, that looks a lot like it because he talks to Theophilus in Luke 1 as well. But I'm like, that's different. In Acts 1, he changes it, though. He says, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. After he had listened to this language, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles. That's an interesting reference point there. Why doesn't he talk immediately about grace or something? It's because, honestly, the whole idea of law, if we think that Jesus kicked the law to the curb, we're just not paying any attention at all. In fact, Paul later references the law of Christ. There's new commands. Now look what he goes on, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing in them 
during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Why does he mention the 40 days? He's building towards something. He's counting. Now, the 40 days had reference a lot of times to when they would go out into the wilderness and get information from God and come back. That happened a lot of times. But Luke picks it up here. It says there are 40 days. And then he ordered them to stay in Jerusalem, not depart, because you've heard from me, the end of verse 4, verse 5 now, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What did they ask? So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, we get a little irritated and a little impatient with the disciples because they keep asking about kingdom. What else could they ask for? They have had 1,500 years from receiving the law. They were brought out. They got the law that was a seal of the covenant. You go forward 500 years to David, they get another covenant that says, there will be a king. You get law. You get land. And they're, of course, looking for the king. Jesus doesn't yell at them. <laughs> he just says, guys, it's not time, and you're not going to know. Okay? But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Now, this little thing is, is earth-shattering. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They would have expected that. You'll be my witnesses in Judea. They're pretty good with that. You'll be my witnesses in Samaria. Uh-uh. Ain't going there. You'll be my witnesses in all the uttermost parts of the world. No chance. No way in the world are they thinking it's our job to go out. They're thinking we're waiting here for the king to come and give us the land. Of course they're thinking that. And as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. Now, why didn't the Holy Spirit come right there? What are we still waiting for? What hasn't happened yet? What's the time frame that's, that's, that's involved? We have something pretty significant here as they replace Judas Iscariot with Matthias. Then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. And another gathering is talked about. When? When the day of Pentecost arrived. Have you ever connected this? Law. Feast of Weeks. The Passover happens again. Jesus is sacrificed. The way John describes it, it's almost he's hanging on the cross while the priests are in killing the, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. He walks around. Forty days go by. He goes up. What's the wait? The day of Pentecost. This is the complete replay of exactly what had happened in all those Old Testament references. All those times that they were celebrating the receiving of the seal, of the deposit, of the down payment, which was the law. Now they wait this time frame, and what is it that they get this time? <laughs> they're all gathered in one place to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, and suddenly there came a, a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. And the wind, of course, makes total sense because Jesus, starting with Nicodemus all the way through, has been using the pneuma, the spirit, the wind, to talk about the Holy Spirit. So, of course, it's got wind attached to it. It makes total sense. And the entire house is filled, and it divided like tongues of fire that spread out on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Have you ever thought about what the real primary affecting was going on right here? It's not that they received the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. Yes, that happens and it's awesome. It's not that they received the signs, like the external behaviors. It's that they received the seal, the deposit, the down payment, just like the Jews did when they received the law in the Old Testament. It's no different. It's no different. It pulls totally across. We sometimes think that these things, law and gospel, are separate of each other. They're not separate at all. They're totally, Jesus grabbed, he went to all of the festivals. He grabbed them all. He brought them forward. And even the timing, I mean, maybe you could have stirred up the Romans to crucify Jesus on Passover. But if you think about it strategically, it was a terrible idea. That's a, the worst time for the Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders, to kill a troublemaker. And yet it didn't dawn on them, well, maybe we're doing this in coincidence with the Passover. Maybe there's, there's no way they thought about that. But then to drag this thing forward and have the event happen at the time of the Festival of Weeks on the day of Pentecost, is on, you couldn't have made this up. You couldn't have invented this. This is spectacular. They're hand in glove with each other. And it draws us forward. They got the seal. We have the seal, the deposit. In fact, the, the New Testament writers got it. I, Ezekiel had prophesied this in 36. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put that within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Moses carrying the stone tablets, right? And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to do What? to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey the law. And Paul, to the Corinthians, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, it's like this has dawned on Paul, and he says, you guys are our letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. This is spectacular. It's spectacular. These feasts so inform us. They bring continuity. Is it exactly the same? No chance. But I'm just going to say this. If you can walk away from this and feel like Israel has been kicked to the curb and should be marginalized and should be treated with disdain and, and all that comes with that, you're just not paying attention to what's going on here. Paul, we love to talk about how Paul said, well, the law doesn't have much effect anymore. We forget, I think, chapter 9, 10, 11 of, of Romans, where Paul says, they are the olive tree. They're the trunk. They're the roots. You Gentiles are just the lucky ones that have been grafted onto the tree. Please realize this. The looking forward, the anticipation that the Israelites had, the faithful Jews who would celebrate the festival... After remembering the Passover, the looking forward was for the king. We're doing the same thing right now. We've had partial fulfillment of the Messianic covenant, but the new covenant wasn't completely filled when Jesus came in his first advent. We are looking forward and anticipating the second advent just exactly like the Jews are doing. We have that. You have that in common. If you have a conversation with someone who's a Jew by birth or definitely someone who's a Jew by faith, talk about this common ground. 
We're looking for the same thing. That's what the anticipation is for. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this. We, again, Luke totally got it as he was interviewing and talking to the disciples who were there. They completely got it, we know, because John went back and grabbed pieces of it. And we sometimes just forget and believe that uh, those that was kind of the old economy or old dispensation or different words that we use or whatever. But actually, these things were completely woven together, given value, and uh, thank you for that. And so now, as we celebrate in our own modern right, in our own way that you've given to the church as a new festival, uh, may we honor you in that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.